Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Settles, and I want to welcome everyone in the audience today. And thank you for taking time to be with us as we tackle several important broadband issues, uh, including how today, uh, take two, including today, how to address the uh, challenges of acquiring, building, borrowing, however you do it, but getting that last mile infrastructure to be there when these middle mile projects that you're reading about go live. Uh, we, as a radio show, is here to um, are here to provide useful information and insights to help communities, companies, and nonprofit organizations get more and better broadband to everywhere it needs to be in America. With us today is Joe Fedoso, who is the uh, CEO of MCNC, which is a, a network operator uh, serving schools uh, of all types throughout uh, North Carolina. And so, Joe, welcome to the show, and uh, thank you for being here this morning. Uh, this morning, Craig, thanks so much for uh, for having me as a guest. And so, let's just jump right in here. Um, of the twelve days of broadband, which day is this? <laughs> I think this is day seven of the twelve days of broadband. So I don't, I can't remember the original song. So I don't know where we are in terms of, uh, you know, whether we're seven calling birds or whatever. I don't know what it was. <laughs> it was all pretty silly. I think we were lords leaping or some such uh, That seven lords leaping is exactly right. I haven't seen any lords outside my office today, though. Oh, well. But let's talk about the innovation, because basically that's what the uh, the whole 12 days of broadband was about, which, by the way, I will, as a marketing person, I have to say that I do appreciate the cleverness of, of the campaign. But 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 fill in our audience. What's all this? Uh, what's all this about here? So uh, MCNC as an organization, our main task in life is to operate uh, an infrastructure called the North Carolina Research and Education Network, and it is the high-speed optical backbone network that uh, interconnects uh, basically all of K through 20 public education in North Carolina. Our 17 institutions of the University of North Carolina system, uh, 27 of the 36 independent colleges and universities, our 58 North Carolina community colleges, and our 115 local school districts and their 2,400 schools to a common backbone. In addition, we serve charter schools, we serve nonprofit hospitals, and uh, public health entities in our counties, in, in our 100 counties across the state. So what we serve as is a backbone infrastructure, an intranet, if you will, for those institutions and their path to both the commercial internet and the advanced research networks, uh, National Lambda Rail and Internet 2. Um, so again, our main task in life is to uh, connect them to this backbone network and then meet their needs for network services as part of that intranet. Okay. And the 12 days of broadband which is uh, what's the story behind that? So the 12 days of broadband. Every year we do several dozen stories uh, about how the institutions that are connected to NCREN, the North Carolina Research and Education Network that we operate, we highlight stories of how they're innovating in using the network infrastructure to connect to each other and to connect to resources around the globe. And that could be in research. It could be in advancing student outcomes. 
it could be in uh, uh, seeding an economic development program. It could be in the latest implementation of healthcare information exchange technologies. And what we did this year is from those dozens of stories, we picked the top 12 and we created uh, the 12 days of broadband and uh, uh, so starting I think on December 13th we have been uh, we have been posting a story every day on our website uh, that highlights uh, from the past year one of the unique uses of the network uh, that we have found so what are a, c a couple of those uh, those uh, 12 Sure, sure. Um, you know, a couple of things. So, uh, and, and I won't spend a ton of time on this now, but I'm sure we'll talk about it a little later. But MCNC was fortunate enough to be the recipient of two uh, significant broadband stimulus grants from the National Telecommunications and Information Administration, uh, the NTIA, which sponsored something that your listeners are very familiar with called the Broadband Technologies Opportunities Program. Program or the BTOP program, and it was funded by the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act that was passed in 2009. Most people know that as the Stimulus Act. Um, what we faced in North Carolina is that uh, we were going to our our constituents on the network, those education and healthcare constituents, were really going to outstrip the capacity of the fiber optic infrastructure um, that existed in rural parts of North Carolina. Uh, we are in North Carolina. We have the second largest uh, rural population by percentage in the country. Uh, Texas is the number one state in terms of percentages of rural population to urban population, and North Carolina is second. And in fact, it's still a growing population. Our our, our rural population grew from about 2.7 million residents to about 3.1 million residents between 2000 and 2010. So we have folks that need. Uh, education, health care, uh, other things that have become net-centric delivered in rural North Carolina, and many of them use our institutions as their, uh, as their entry point to receive those services. So when we started to look at our traffic numbers, traffic at those institutions, uh, Internet traffic doubling every two to three years, and looked at the fiber assets that were available in rural North Carolina, um, we knew we had to undertake uh, major investments in middle mile infrastructure in rural North Carolina in order to meet those needs. And the middle mile is not just a transport layer for most states. It's also the section or the sector of the Internet that most of these community anchor institutions lie directly on. So hospitals, universities tend to be directly connected to that middle mile infrastructure. We had a paucity of that in North Carolina. Um, when the BTOP program came out, we aggressively went after private matching funds and were able to raise about $40 million, including $24 million from the Golden Leaf Foundation, which is our uh, tobacco settlement foundation in North Carolina, and $4 million from a private wholesaler, private for-profit wholesaler called FRC, $8 million from our own endowment um, at MCNC, put up those $40 million in matching matching funds and won federal grants matching those to $104 million to build or acquire about 2,500 miles of middle mile infrastructure throughout the rural parts of the state. We end up touching about 80 of the counties of the 100 counties in North Carolina. And at the end of that project, we will basically have addressed the need that we had and that our clients had for 
uh, bandwidth uh, and for fiber optic infrastructure for the next 25 to 30 years. Um, and what we wanted to do with the 12 days of broadband, as I mentioned, is highlight as we build this network, um, uh, we started in uh, July of 2010, as we build this network, uh, we actually put into service some of the fiber um, as, we, as it's completed and tested. And a great example of one of the stories we highlighted in the uh, in the 12 days of broadband is East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, is kind of the hub of networking for us in the eastern part of the state. They also have a major medical center. We were able to upgrade their connection from a one gig lease connection this year to a 10 gig um, connection on the new network, and they're using that to advance their telemedicine services. They're using that to do more remote monitoring of patients. From an educational perspective, ECU has started outreach to the five school districts that surround them with a virtual education program. They actually have um, a virtual world uh, college that many high school students are taking now. I think about 60 or 70 high school students are taking college classes in virtual worlds um, so that they come into college with college credit. And they're expanding all those programs because of the expanding bandwidth. Another story that we highlighted this year was uh, was Fayetteville Technical Community College in Fayetteville, North Carolina, um, has been a leader in virtualization technologies um, uh, and virtual world 3D virtualization technologies. And they do a lot of military training with those. Fort Bragg is located in Fayetteville. Um, and they have modules uh, that uh, talk about field medical technicians and what they do and, and modules that uh, uh, talk about how to uh, build anything from building a tent to uh, 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 operating a military vehicle. And they've been able to scale their use of those virtualiz 3D virtualization modules because now they have advanced, enhanced connectivity to the network. So those were just two of the stories that we highlighted. Right, okay. And so basically <clears throat> what I'm hearing is that the the project isn't at its final end point, the, the stimulus right. part of the project, but there, nevertheless there are still uh, uses that the network is being put to as we go. Which, which Yeah, exactly. To, which brings me to a point of, uh, I don't know, consternation, which is that lately – there have been these headlines, you know, all this money has been given out for broadband and nothing is finished yet, <laughs> which, you know, personally I find absurd, but you're in the trenches. I mean, is, is this, you know, an unfair criticism? Uh, obviously not in your case. Okay, even though you're not done, you're, you're putting stuff to, to work. Yeah, yeah. To use, but, I mean, I'm sure you talk to other project teams and, and folks, you know, your colleagues and other grant programs. Is this an unfair criticism that we're not well, done? So most of the, uh, and, and I'll give you an update on where we are, but, but most of our peers that receive grants, so most state research and education networks that receive grants, are doing quite well on on their deployments. There have always been a, there have been a couple, obviously that have run into uh, run into issues in the implementation. But I can tell you when I talk to my peers in Michigan and in California and in Oklahoma and others that were involved in these grants in New York. Um, they may not have received direct money, but through public-private partnership, they received money. Most are doing fairly well in their implementation, and I, you know, I, 
I know, obviously, in detail what we've been able to do, and out of the $140 million investment that we will make in rural broadband infrastructure in North Carolina, at this point, we've deployed about $50 million, and we're doing quite well. We received the money in two rounds. The first round was about 415 miles of new build. We are essentially within a mile of completing that, and we'll have it completed uh, and all the fiber blown into the project uh, probably by the end of January, early February, but the dig part is essentially complete. Um, our second round award is much bigger. It's about 1,200, 1,300 miles of new infrastructure, and we are about 300 miles into that. Um, so we were, we are one of those projects that is creating jobs every day um, through good engineering jobs, through construction jobs, through our our, uh, our partner Comscope, who is making the actual fiber and conduit. Um, through uh, Cisco, who we bought the first round op uh, uh, optical gear from. Um, we're creating jobs and spending money every day into the economy. So I think we were one of those projects that was shovel-ready. I know of uh, several others that are shovel-ready. Um, the NTIA would have to give you the stats overall, but uh, a lot of these projects are doing quite well, and they're making a significant impact on their state's economy. Mm-hmm. And that's a big plus. I mean, my general my general feeling is that the people who are criticizing are just people who need something to criticize because uh, yours isn't the only uh, story that I've heard and have talked about on this show. You know, there 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 are other folks. I mean, Michigan was on uh, the University of Michigan has yeah. a project, and they were on yesterday and talking about how they are building in such a way that they're adding wireless capabilities to the fiber. As it's as it's turned on, so as it's yeah. being uh, put out there, so that people along the route of their project are getting, you know, not the fiber obviously, but they're getting the wireless and and, pre and pretty heavy yeah. wireless at that, because of the fact that you know the, the the construction part, the build out part is going very smartly. You know, people are thinking about, you know, how can I do things in tandem to yeah. get. Uh, benefit going, you know, as, as quickly as possible. Yeah, and, and I think you know when you when you think about it, to think about an analogy, when when the Eisenhower administration, you know, really backed the interstate system, um, and uh, as you know, road infrastructure is is much more expensive to both build and maintain than fiber optic infrastructure. But we're kind of building the highway of the of the 21st century and when when you think about this um you build it the same way you build a highway right you 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 obtain the right of way you uh dig the 3 foot by 3 foot 3 foot wide by 3 foot deep trench you lay the conduit in you blow the fiber in uh, you test the fiber, and then when it's ready for deployment, you link up the, the optical gear and you put it into service as you build it. You don't have to wait until the project is complete completed. You don't have to wait until all 2,500 miles, in our case, is, is completed in order to start to gain the benefit from the fiber. Um, and, and that's the way we've approached this. We wanted to get to market early. We wanted to spend this money to create jobs in the economy. Um, and that's exactly what we've done. You, on any given day today, three to 400 people are working on this project who probably wouldn't have jobs in this economy otherwise. And, and we feel very heartened by that. Obviously, our main goal in this was to make certain that our education 
education institutions, both public and private in North Carolina, had uh, the capacity to grow their bandwidth use uh, pretty much in an unlimited way over the next 20 to 25 years um, at stable costs. And we'll achieve that at the end of it. But uh, again, I think the short-term benefit is that we're putting people to work and spending money uh, in the economy. So, uh, um, you know, I, I, can't, I tend not to try to classify things as fair or unfair. We just tend to focus on execution of the project. And um, I would give uh, our team here at MCNC a, a pretty solid A minus to A grade on how we've executed. That's good. That makes a lot of sense there. Uh, you mentioned when we were prepping for the show that there are other states that have similar kinds of network operators, sure. uh, such as uh, MCNC. Give us a little bit of the, I guess, overview of what that is. Because, you know, obviously until sure. we started talking, I really wasn't aware that sure. there are similar kinds of network operators. So, so when you think about this space, and, and you, um, you know, most of, uh, particularly the the university system, the R1, uh, what they call Research One institutions, um, that tend to be large public state universities that do a lot of our research across the country. Um, they have very unique bandwidth needs. Um, unique bandwidth needs that aren't always able to be met by uh, commercial for-profit vendors. They need large amounts of bandwidth uh, to serve their student and research populations. They need bursty amounts of bandwidth uh, in order to meet the needs of, of researchers who might be doing genomics research or textile research or computer networking research. Um, and uh, what the, the typical way to meet these research and education needs has been to form um, an intranet where uh, you have a high-speed, low-latency, fiber-based network that serves these institutions and their needs. And uh, across the country, these state networks have been um, kind of quilted together by two advanced research networks uh, and, and um, in Internet 2 and National Lambda Rail for the most part. And they allow those high-speed, low-latency connections between those research institutions on a countrywide and now a global basis so that, you know, again, a researcher at Stanford and a re researcher at UNC Chapel Hill who are working on a similar genomics project can collaborate together over a high-speed optical backbone um, without having to mix their traffic with all the other traffic on the commercial Internet. So it's about these exclusive connections. The exclusive connections, the intranet-like connections are key to advancing this research in the wide area. So about 40 states have research and education networks that connect uh, mainly their higher ed institutions. Um, and uh, uh, they've been in operation, you know, for the last uh, 20 to 25 years. In the last probably five to seven years, um, uh, state governments across the country have realized that these state research and education networks can also be a very efficient way to deploy um, bandwidth to community colleges and K through 12 schools and charter schools. The main benefit to the community colleges, K through 12 schools and charter schools is that particularly for those in rural areas of a state, they allow access to more bandwidth at more efficient pricing um, than, uh, than if those if those institutions, if those K through 12 school districts or community colleges would try to buy, buy internet service on their own. 
and I'll give you an example. Uh, we have ve we have several remote parts of North Carolina, rural parts of the state, uh, uh, ones that have high natural beauty, from the beaches of the Outer Banks to our mountains in in the West, uh, to the, the Blue Ridge Mountains in the West. But they're typically very difficult institutions to build infrastructure to, and if they buy internet on their own as a district by district or community college by community college, they tend to pay very expensive prices for bandwidth. Um, upwards, when we first started to connect the, the school districts, it was upwards of $100 per meg per month for Internet service. When we put them on a backbone, the NCREN backbone, the North Carolina Research and Education Network backbone, we put them in a consortium with North Carolina State University in Raleigh and UNC Chapel Hill and Chapel Hill and UNC Charlotte and Charlotte, and they buy Internet bandwidth in commodity in that consortium. Um, and we basically interconnect with Quest and Level 3 in both Raleigh and Charlotte to supply that Internet bandwidth for us. And it ends up being $6 per meg per month. Um, so that those rural school districts who are paying $100 can now afford 10x to 20x the bandwidth they were using, um, and it benefits their students. They can use more web-based resources. They can get content and curriculum maybe in areas where they don't have a certified physics teacher or, or calculus teacher. They can start to take those classes over the web, either on the intranet from the North Carolina Virtual Public School or somewhere over an internet-based resource. Um, so it opens up the world, but it's two different value propositions. For the larger institutions, it's mainly research-driven, bursty traffic. For the smaller institutions, it's more about teaching and learning, access to content, and be, being able to access more bandwidth. So that's why states do it. Do you have some leverage to on the eventual costs at the point where the where the end user connects? Because you mentioned that you know that the, it goes from them having to pay $100 per meg yeah. down to, what was it, 7 Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, what uh, the factors that enter into that is that uh, um, we have seen – the bottom line is that we have seen those rural school districts um, uh, up their bandwidth requirements by probably 20 to 30x since we've connected them to this they don't really they they don't really um uh it, it's a cost savings but what they've done is they had so much pent up demand for internet bandwidth that they've translated that cost savings into buying more internet bandwidth i hope that makes sense um so in, instead they would take a 4 meg connection and they would have a 40 meg connection to the internet now um, we have actually, uh, um, and it's a complex equation, but I can give you the elements of it. So um, they would pay $100 per meg per month for bandwidth uh, from the Internet. They might pay four or $500 a month to get a 5 meg connection. Um, now they're paying a small fee to join the backbone. And um, they're also buying. Uh, they also get their internet bandwidth in that fee. So for that same four to five hundred dollars per month, they're getting thirty meg or forty meg of internet service. So it's not that they're spending any less, but they're getting ten times the bandwidth to meet the pent up demand that they had. The other good piece of news is that uh, uh, for the most part, to connect those rural school districts to the um, NCREN backbone that we operate, we, ha we buy a local circuit or we procure a local circuit from a private sector for-profit provider. 
Um, and it's usually the incumbent in the region. So for us, that would be CenturyLink in the east, AT&T for most of the uh, uh, for most of the rest of the state, Frontier Communications in our far west, and then Time Warner Cable throughout the state. And the lucrativeness of that local circuit business has grown immensely. It's almost doubled in size over the last five years because those local circuits have had to increase in size in order to uh, uh, um, adequately address the, the bandwidth demand uh, that we've helped create. Mm-hmm. Now, is there any way to um, leverage this service uh, or this infrastructure to facilitate um, last-mile networks sure. that the rest of the communities can tap into. Sure. So l- let me let me talk about that. Uh, uh, let me talk about that a little bit, um, and, and I'll use a couple of examples. Um, uh, and and you understand and your listeners understand the landscape of this. Um, so I, I do, I'm going to go through some basics, but stop me if I'm going through at a too too basic level. But okay. when you look at when you look at where we are today with infrastructure deployment, um, the first point that I'll make is think about 15 years ago when a 56k modem was our main way of connecting most households to the internet. And now we've, you know, in most in in most urban areas, except where you have UVerse or FiOS service, um, we usually look at maybe a three to fifteen meg connection um, download speed. It's asynchronous, so it's it's 768k to four meg uh, four meg up. Um, my first claim is that with home monitoring for healthcare, with all the entertainment options. Um, that we now have that are web delivered, all of those things. In 15 more years, we're going to look at 3 to 15 meg da- uh, down to the home and and uh, 768 to 4 4 4 meg up as uh, the way we looked at, the way we look at dial up um, today. You know, we're we're going to laugh at it and say it's not an adequate speed. So. That's okay for urban areas where there's really high density and a private sector for-profit company can get a return on investment from building fiber close to the home, fiber to the curb, other things. Because everyone agrees past a certain point we can no longer utilize the old copper infrastructure and T1s and other things in order to uh, meet this bandwidth demand. So if you're in an urban area, particularly a fairly you know uh, wealthy urban area, you're, you're probably going to get service over time that um, is is going to keep up with the demand and whatever ends up on the network. Um, in suburban areas and in rural areas, the equation is never going to work for you. The equation of building out infrastructure that's going to meet those feeds and speeds is never going to work for you. There's not going to be middle-mile infrastructure or last-mile infrastructure built in most cases because the return on investment isn't going to meet Wall Street expectations or even your shareholder expectations if you're a private company. And the only way I believe that we're going to be able to meet the needs for that infrastructure that we're going to need in the future is going to be through some sort of uh, 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 nonprofit, private-public investment in that infrastructure. Which actually leads me to a question uh, I've been hanging on to for for a little bit here, which is, um, does the nonprofit approach to building a company or creating a company to provide broadband needs 
is that the equation? Because I know you have Maine, and that's Wally Bowen's yep. group out there. And Wally is, like, sincerely passionate about the fact that co-ops yep. are – you know, our way around because it gets past the legal issue. Yeah. It takes the local government to a point out of the equation, or at least it moves them to the side. They're not necessarily the only the whole. Now, with nonprofits, I don't know enough of them. In fact, you're my first nonprofit yep. network provider, so you can tell me. I mean, can is, is forming these a, a way to address the middle mile? Uh, I, 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 you know, I definitely think that that this is a way. Um, and and Wally, you know, the main network is a good way to kind of describe this. But so so let's take let's take what I was talking about earlier down to the next level. So so in North Carolina now we've got we've got a nonprofit that is basically building um, building middle mile infrastructure in areas where. Even an independent telco, or and definitely not a um, a Wall Street traded for-profit company, is going to ever be able to justify it to their shareholders this type of infrastructure build-out. I mean, there's just there, there's never going to be a great return on investment. So, what can we use this middle mile for? That's going to seed um, development of more last-mile technologies. And I think what happens is, and, and I, I think the NTIA had a very good strategy on this, is to say, we're going to use this on the commercial side. We're not going to ask those nonprofits to stand up services to, um, to, uh, to serve last-mile customers. And I'm certainly glad they didn't, because there are plenty of small telephone co-ops. There are incumbent telecoms in the private sector that operate in these rural areas over outdated infrastructure right now, but they have the truck rolls, they have the knocks, they have all of the infrastructure that you need to serve last mile customers. What they were really lacking were multiple paths out and competition in this wholesale market, and in some cases even the fiber optic infrastructure to drive modern services over the network um, that we're going to scale to the future. So I don't think it's our role to serve last cu last mile customers, but it's our role to make sure that we leverage this middle mile infrastructure that we are putting in right now to disrupt and add competition to the wholesale market, reduce the cost of operation for that independent telco or, um, or incumbent telecom or telephone co-op or electric membership co-op that wants to offer enhanced broadband to their services, help them lower their cost of operation so that they can deploy, deploy more service to their more uh, enhanced service to their existing customers and then grow their footprint of service over time. And so to, to give you an equation, for, for a company like Wally's, or let, let me use another example. Um, we work with, uh, we work with a, a company that won a substantial uh, broadband uh, uh, a BIP award from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and they're deploying fiber to the home in a rural area in western North Carolina. They are going to use parts of our fiber to give them another path to the Internet and a cheaper path to the Internet for their customers so that they can reduce their cost of operation and deploy even more service out to folks. And I think that's the equation, right? Use our infrastructure to lower your cost of operation and then provide more and better services and more comprehensive services to your service area. And we're starting to see that happen. Um, so again, our role in this is to 
as attractively as possible, make it easy to interconnect for those commercial companies to the infrastructure that we're building, help them lower their costs, help them offer advanced bandwidth services to their current customers, and widen their service area to reach others. And that's starting to work. And as, as we get the fiber built, light it and start to deploy it, and there's dark fiber assets out there that these commercial entities can procure from us um, at, at, at market disruptive rates, you'll see that happen more and more, I truly believe. So do you see the scenario, though, of a community deciding to form a nonprofit to partner with um, a local private sector provider in a public-private partnership? Yeah, I, I see. I, I see several different scenarios happening, and it's going to be based on the market characteristics of a certain area. Some areas may say we want to procure fiber as a private nonprofit. Some some regions may say that, and we want to uh, we want to bring in an experienced carrier to help us operate that nonprofit and deploy service to our population. In some cases, we may have a small telephone co-op who says, you know, we want to procure either dark fiber or a lit service from uh, from another private sector provider that will reduce our cost of operation and allow us to deploy more service. I think there's going to be as many models of how to make this work and increase deployment of service as there is last-mile technologies that are out there to reach the underserved today. Um, and so I don't think there's one model that you can point to to say, uh, to say this is going to work um, in every case. But I think it's going to depend on the market dynamics and the market densities of the regions where we operate. And we'll have as many solutions as there are, uh, as there are regions, I believe. Right. No, I understand. Uh, I was talking to one of the editors over at Broadband Communities Magazine, and they said yep. they, had, uh, they had talked to you on this, and there's a story coming out next week, which I look forward yep. to reading, and you had a couple of, you know, some interesting ideas on that last mile question. Sure. Were these did, or was there something in the article that will, you can give us a peek at? What yeah, yeah, no, I, I, so uh, northeastern North Carolina, for example, particularly when you get east of Greenville, and I'm sorry for those who are listening who, who don't know the topography, but once you get east of I-95 in North Carolina and head towards the coast, we have very low density of population. Um, there are little towns that have um, that have uh, spurred up, but there is a, an intense demand for broadband in a lot of these little towns. There's a town called Roper, for example, that lies in between Greenville and the Outer Banks, um, and they've been trying for years to get uh, to get enhanced service. So what we've encouraged like the folks in Roper to do is to look at the footprint around their area. They have a they have an agricultural research center for NC State. Um, they have some growing businesses, particularly in uh, in grain sales. Um, there is a wind energy uh, cluster and an aviation cluster that um, are starting to build uh, uh, small uh, operating plants in their area. Understand their market and then use those market dynamics and the fact that we're going to have fiber optic middle mile infrastructure closer to them than ever before to put together a package that explains the benefits of their area, explains who the end customers for enhanced broadband service could be, and then either procure the fiber to, to uh, help to form a nonprofit to procure the fiber to meet their need, or encourage service deployment by a for-profit or a co-op or an independent telco 
um, to uh, to meet the needs. And and the last mile technologies could be a ton of things, right? They could be um, they 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 could be uh, in the LTE space. They they could be in white space technologies that are emerging now. Uh, so in the wireless space, or they could be some sort of wired solution. But the, the key is now you've got to look at all the tools that you have in this toolbox to solve the problem and address the issue and really take a regional approach that's steeped in market research on your market in order to attract investment, further investment in last mile broadband in your area. I don't think there's any other way. What we will add to the equation is that we're going to have dark fiber assets closer to those markets than anybody's ever had it in North Carolina before. And that could be a huge cost savings in the wholesale area, in other words, how you get to the Internet, that will seed last-mile investment. Right, okay. Now, has all of the legislative stuff that went on this past year, and has is that putting a damper on broadband deployment? Because I know there were a number of communities – yeah. Wanting to do their own thing, wanting to do public-private partnerships. I mean, you know, all the creative kinds of options seem to have all been been nixed as part of the the legislation. Yeah, so so there is nothing there is nothing in the legislation. It's House Bill 129. It started off as House Bill 129 that that d- denies the right to do a public-private partnership. And uh, to be perfectly honest, what what the bill does is that it says that if a municipality wants to offer broadband service. In their, um, in their, to to citizens in their municipality, if they want to offer broadband service, um, they have to go. They have to. They have to uh, uh, first of all do an analysis of where the underserved areas are in their community, and then secondly, they have to. Um, if they decide to deploy service on their own, they have to go through the same regulatory procedures um, that a, uh, a service provider would go through in order to offer service. Um, and and uh, uh, the municipalities have had slightly different, a slightly different operating uh, uh, system uh, in, in the past where they haven't had to go through the regulatory approvals. They haven't had to um, uh, go through, uh, you know, they can use their own rights of way and easements uh, and, and all of those things. Um, I'm not going to express an opinion on the bill, but I, I think it, it – if if we truly come to the table with what you said, Craig, to form public-private partnership, the bill will not um, uh, will, the bill will not impact our ability to deploy service in underserved areas in North Carolina. Um, what it's done is that it's forced us to have more adult conversations around the table, right? It's forced us to make sure that the public sector sits down with the private sector and tries to solve the problem on its own. Um, and both of them have recourse back to our General Assembly to say if one of them is negotiating in bad faith, either public or private, the bill allows recourse to go back and, and appeal. So I don't think in the long term um, that the stories that came out about the bill initially were, uh, were, were, an, were an accurate reflection that it was going to kill rural broadband uh, deployment in North Carolina. I think what it does is that it forces us into a series of public-private partnerships and and our governor Bev Perdue wants to help that wants to wants to create a framework to have those public private partnership discussions happen in good faith. 
um, so that a provider can't come in and just say, you know, we'll never reach this community because our return on investment uh, won't justify it. And a municipality can't say, well, we're going to overbuild you then in the areas that you do serve. We're going to overbuild you and offer a competitive service, and we're going to take advantage of our uh, rights of way and property tax abatements and other things so that we can lower our price to below what you offer in those areas. I don't think those situations are good for anybody where we end up competing with one another on places that already have service, right? Um, so I think what it's done is that it's forced us to be creative on creating public-private partnerships that are truly mutually beneficial, and we need to work out the details of what they look like. And we at MCNC, as a private nonprofit, we're sure hoping that our fiber assets that we're building can help some of those public-private partnership discussions along. Mm-hmm. Um, also earlier when we were doing the, the prelim stuff to the show, we talked a uh, half a second about uh, cloud computing, yeah. and um, which caught my eye. I've been getting some tweets about sure. uh, cloud computing in general. Not, but I wanted to know what's your take on cloud computing? Sure. You said that it's a it's a topic that's that the term is popular, but you guys sort of approach it differently. Yeah. So so in, the concept is basically this: in mid 2013, we're going to have a big old honking network that has basically unlimited capacity. Uh, to serve all these education and healthcare institutions in North Carolina. If you look at how they're buying services, applications, and tools today, they are buying services, applications, and tools basically on an institution-by-institution basis. So if you went to a rural school district in North Carolina, they have a contract for video streaming. They have a contract for content filtering, anti-spam, antivirus service. They have a contract for uh, uh, firewalling service, they ha- and, and it usually means a server is put on their premise, and it usually means that a service contract goes with that server, um, and that uh, you know they have suites of ERP applications where, where it forces them to deploy infrastructure to that uh, specific institution. The whole concept of the cloud is that you would take that server that exists in that institution and you would remove that server and you would begin to deliver the service from a network, a, a, a data center somewhere that is placed strategically on the network that can serve multiple institutions from one spot. So you eliminate that investment in hardware at the institution level. You, would, you eliminate that single, uh, you eliminate that cost of a, a service contract for each individual institutions and you centralize the delivery of it. Um, if you walked into a typical school district today or community college in a rural area, you'll see a server rack with 25 servers that are delivering a point-delivered service. And it's a highly inefficient way to do business. But in order to take those individual services and move them into a centralized data center, into a local cloud or a regional cloud or a vendor-based cloud, you have to have a big honking network with a lot of bandwidth and low latency so that you don't notice the difference in application performance from when you had the server locally in the district or at the community college. So we're going to have a big honking network with a lot of bandwidth, a lot of low latency bandwidth, and we've started to uh, move on a path where we remove those local service, those local servers that are delivering those applications and delivering them from the center. So I can give you one staunch example. At the beginning of the year, we have 115 local school districts in North Carolina. 
all of them are required in order to draw down E-rate funds from the federal government to build out their local area networks and to procure services, they have to filter content that comes into that school district. The federal government doesn't really have a standard to tell you what you have to filter, but you have to sign an agreement. Part of your filing for E-rate says that I filter content. Uh, um, and uh, uh, so it's a necessary service that they have to have. In North Carolina, we had about seven companies um, that were to providing individual content filtering, anti-spam, and antivirus services uh, to our 115 school districts. And if you looked at that spend, if you added up the 115, it was about a $6 million spend. Now that we have a network in place and all the school districts are connected to NCREN, we centrally contracted for a content filtering, anti-spam, antivirus service that will be delivered from a centralized data center. In this case, it's a company in Sunnyvale, California called Zscaler. Um, and uh, they have virtual servers at our data center at MCNC, and they're delivering that service to as many um, local school districts as want to opt in. And we've had about 50 initially. We just introduced the service in October. It's all opt-in, but we've had about 50 school districts initially sign up for that centralized delivering ser delivered service. Um, on a per-student basis, it saves about 60% per student on uh, delivery of that service to a school district. So the cloud can have huge opportunities. So multiply that by 25 different services, the state could um, essentially gain efficiencies that we can deploy into other things, right? If I'm a parent, which I am, um, I would rather that the school district find a very efficient way to do content filtering, anti-spam, and antivirus, take that efficiency and invest it in something that's actually going to impact the way my sons and daughters learn every day, enhance content in physics and math, enhance content in English and things like that. I don't necessarily want them to give that money back. But I want them to have a lower uh, a lower student teacher ratio, and I want them to be giving more compelling content to my child. And uh, so what we want to do is take those services that don't necessarily touch the child or, or have direct impact on teaching and learning and deliver those as efficiently as possible. And you can start to do that through the cloud. Mm -hmm. Now, with the E-rate program in the mm -hmm. reform that was announced a couple of few months ago, yeah. the they're loosening up the ability for these networks to be used by the community yep. after school hours. And so do you think that's going to continue? But what's the practical effect? Because as you may have gathered from some of my reading, I'm a big champion of opening as much as possible to to the communities. So, uh, and, and in fact, I'll give you a little precursor on a couple things that I'm going to say to our State Board of Education in North Carolina in early January. We, you know, so if you look at the stats, and I know you've looked at them, the, the latest NTIA broadband adoption studies basically tell you that in a rural school district, uh, in most classrooms, about 50% of the kids are not going to have broadband at home. It's really difficult in that environment to go headlong into virtual education when you know as a teacher you assign homework and 50% of the kids aren't going to have the bandwidth when they get home to do that homework. Mm -hmm. So we've got to get to a point where we start to look at the school as more of a place of, uh, of structured learning from 8 to 3 every day but a place of community gathering from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. every day. And not, you don't necessarily have to fully staff that facility, 
but you've got to make it a place where kids feel comfortable, particularly at the middle school and high school level, coming in at any hour um, and utilizing the assets and the resources and, frankly, the bandwidth. Now, there are a lot of implications to that, transportation and other things. How do kids get back and forth? But I found as a parent, even with most most parents in, in rural districts who might be 15 to 20 miles away from their school, if it has to do with their child's education, they'll make sacrifices to make sure that the child can continue to advance. And I think the restriction that we have today is that the resources aren't accessible. I also think that libraries are very, very important in this equation. The NTIA study said that, you know, the number one place for folks who do not have uh, do not have broadband access at home to get broadband access is usually their local library. And, um, uh, you know, the NTIA defined a library within the definition of community anchor institution um, uh, that they put out when they started the BTOP program. And I think we need to make sure that our libraries have adequate connectivity um, for the regional population that they need to serve. But we've got to start to think about ways that we can – last-mile deployments are frankly going – in underserved areas are frankly going to happen over a period of a decade. And we can't look at this generation and say, um, we're going to make your way to decade in order to get broadband when everything that we're doing is becoming network-centric. Your education, your health care, finding a job, your entertainment's all going online, but we can't look at you and say that we're not going to put in any interim solutions to help you get access to broadband on a regular basis. We've got to start opening up some of these community anchor institutions during what would normally be their off hours and giving folks access. So you're basically saying we got to do more. We got to open it up more now that we have yeah. the opportunity. Yeah, because I, I think you see, I mean, it, it, last mile broadband deployment is always going to be at some level of return on investment. Whether a government does it, whether a telephone co-op does it, whether a uh, for, whether a large incumbent telecom does it, it's always going to be about return on investment. Now, each one of those sectors has a different view of return on investment, but that means the deployment's not going to happen immediately. It's going to be based on market forces that are out there and what that return looks like. So we have got to now start to think about those institutions that have high bandwidth service, whether it's because of the BTOP program or because of another program, and opening up those institutions more as community centers than what we look at them today, which they serve a very specific and kind of narrow purpose from in a very small part of the day. And I'll give you an example from our network. You know, we serve every education institution K through 20 across North Carolina. Normally during the day, we'll run anywhere from 18 to 30 gig of traffic at the peak parts of the day across that backbone. I can do that. Any, we can do that any time of the day, but we drop off after school. We drop off after 3 p.m. So the the facility and the capacity is there 24 hours a day, but we drop off substantially after a normal school day. We've got to start to rethink what the purpose of that institution we call school is, and is it more of a community gathering place than it is a uh, um, uh, than it is just sole purpose for education from eight to three. And I would contend that we need to do that across a number of anchor institutions. I mean, the library is one, the schools is another. Now, you and I talked about um, the the opening up the healthcare area. So, yeah, and we got about like seven, eight minutes. Let's talk a little bit about that and sure. what other potential markets or market segments yeah. you guys could, could potentially address. 
Yeah, so you know, let's talk about the overall market, and then we can talk about healthcare. So when when the NTIA defined community anchor institution, they also included things like uh, county and municipal governments, state governments, all those other things. Uh, one of the things that that uh, um, when I look at our mission as MCNC operating the North Carolina Research and Education Network. I want to. We want to leave enough of those anchor institutions un, uh, unserved by NCREN in rural areas, so that there is incentive for private, for, for or for for-profit or telephone co-ops to serve those entities and expand their service areas to others. In other words, if we take over in rural areas, if we provide service to every community anchor institution, um, there is a lack of business there to encourage more deployment by for-profit entities. Does that make sense? Yes. I mean, it was the complaint yeah. of some of the challenges to a broadband award yeah. because people were saying that if you do this, this takes away a large segment yeah. of our revenue base. So we've got to be very careful as we expand that we don't take away um, so much of an available market that there's no incentive for a for-profit carrier to come in and deploy additional services to unserved, uh, underserved uh, citizens and businesses. And that's what I mean. You know, when, when we start to get into detailed analysis, we have to do that. For healthcare. Um, I think there is both private and I think there is immense private and public opportunity in here. Healthcare is going to be and already is in a lot of cases at the research end uh, a very high bandwidth demand business. And when you start talking about electronic medical records technologies and healthcare information exchange, you're talking about a use of bandwidth that's going to dwarf anything that we do today in any other sector. When you start talking about mass transport of radiological images from a small doctor's office served by an AT&T or a CenturyLink or a Time Warner to a hospital and to, an infor to a centralized information exchange, everybody's going to benefit as we move towards more adoption of EMR technologies and HIE technologies. What we've said is that a basis, um, you can utilize our network as kind of the core of that system because we're very high bandwidth and low latency, and those private sector carriers can take advantage of the assets that we've built, the fiber assets that we've built, um, as they spread that connectivity to doctor's offices, smaller for-profit hospitals, more for-profit clinics, we are more than willing in North Carolina to use our network as the core of that system that, that hosts the data repositories so that the connections into those data repositories are very high speed and low latency so that, that you know, there's nothing in those core that causes network performance to or application performance to, to be hindered at all at the individual doctor's office level. So I think our role is mainly going to be to host the information repositories and to connect the large nonprofit hospitals. But beyond that, I think the rest of the opportunity is a private sector opportunity. And again, I mean, I can't even imagine when you, I mean start to think about this part of what's going to happen is you're going to say to reduce healthcare costs we have to do more proactive monitoring of patients that proactive monitoring of patients has to happen at home so we're going to have you know we're going to have certain diagnostic devices that exist at somebody's home who's in a high risk category and we're going to take their vitals twice a day that transport of all that data is going to be over the internet to a practitioner 
who might be in an individual doctor's office or might be in a hospital. And then that data is going to go to some centralized health record hosted in a data repository, right? And this is just going to create bandwidth demand that we haven't even contemplated today. When you start to get into, you know, home synchronous video, high-definition video consultation with your doctor and remote monitoring of vitals on a daily basis, I mean, it, it's going to dwarf anything we've ever thought of using the Internet for before. Mm-hmm. So, now we've got about uh, four minutes or so. Uh, one of my wrap-up questions then is – um, do you think communities would have more luck working with smaller regional providers that are more uh, wedded to the community than dealing with some of the nationals that are – I mean, they don't live there. They're not part of the, necessarily yeah. the local landscape. So that they – in other words, it's basically saying the private sector partner is a valued entity, but are we likely to get a better deal working with the local hometown teams? If you will. Yeah. So I, I think I think it really depends on where you are. You know, in Raleigh, North Carolina, AT and T and Time Warner Cable are our hometown carriers. We don't have a small local telecom. So as you get more urbanized, your hometown carrier is that large incumbent carrier. Uh, where you have a, in general, where you have a telephone cooperative or an independent telco operating in a rural area, usually. Um, first of all, they're not held to the same 12 to 18 month return on capital investment that those large incumbents are held to by their shareholders in the street. They normally have a uh, 15 to 20 year return on capital, and so they're going to be more friendly to deploying service um, in the wide area in the region that they serve. I think, secondly, most of the time, that telephone co-op or that independent telco has a board of directors that is steeped in local leaders. And they're going to be, by nature, more friendly to that local area and want to meet the needs of that local area, particularly in the case of a co-op. So, again, it is location-dependent. But in most cases in a rural area, that independent telco or that telephone cooperative is going to be steeped in that local community. And it's probably a good place to start your conversation at least about serving underserved areas in in your region. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of those independent telcos and rural telephone cooperatives received grants and loans from the Rural Utility Service, from the Broadband Initiatives Program, the BIP program from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, um, through the American Recovery and Investment Act. We, you know, in North Carolina, we were highly successful. Our $140 million of awards, which included $104 million, in uh, in federal funding, but there was another $150 million to about 11 small telephone co-ops, independent telcos, and electric membership cooperatives in rural areas, and they're mostly fiber-to-the-home initiatives. Um, so, yeah, it, you know, it, it definitely in rural areas, the, that local telco, that, lo, that telephone co-op, that uh, electric membership cooperative is usually the most friendly audience you'll get for broadband deployment. Gotcha. Well, we're going to have to wrap here, and uh, Joe, this has been a very beneficial conversation and an enlightening one, and I hope our listeners have uh, appreciated as much as I have all the comments and insights about uh, what your organization is doing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I enjoy the, the, the remaining 
12 days of, <laughs> of broadband and 12 days of Christmas and whatever other holidays you're uh, <laughs> you're celebrating. Have a great have a great week and a great yeah. holiday season. Thank, thanks so much, Craig. And to all your listeners, thank them for their commitment. Most of them are, are highly involved in this industry, and we really appreciate them. And we appreciate the way that the NTIA has administrated the BTOP program because it's given us uh, maximum flexibility to uh, to achieve our goals and serve the institutions that are connected to NCREN. So happy holidays. Thank you. Excellent. And final thanks to our media partners, GigaOM, Broadband Communities Magazine, uh, MuniWireless.com, and Community Networks. Thank you, our audience as well, for being here, and we'll talk again soon.